on, a, um, on my trip to Turkey about a year ago, I was uh, confronted with just how small and petty we can be with our lives. When uh, town after town, ruin after ruin, museum after museum in cities like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Istanbul, there were these great statues of uh, men and women, all of which had their noses knocked off. And uh, I, I asked at one point um, several years ago, because this is not the first time I've seen this, but I asked several years ago, uh, do the noses fall off of these uh, statues? And it, I was told, no, uh, the, the noses are knocked off. This is sort of the etymology of defacing someone. The noses are knocked off by subsequent leaders who are envious of the honor and acclaim still being given to these people. And it's believed that this is what happened to the Sphinx itself. Last week, uh, in talking about anger, uh, I said that Cain killed Abel because Cain was angry at his brother. The truth is, envy lie behind the anger. And I said last week that uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers because they were angry over the relationship that he had with their father. The truth is, envy was behind the anger. And I said that David spent a lot of time running from Saul because Saul wanted to kill him because Saul was angry at David's acclaim with the people. The truth is that could better be defined as envy. There is a lot of envy in this book. David envied the lives of the wicked. The Philistines envied Isaac's flocks. Rachel envied Leah's children. Leah envied Rachel's beauty. The envy went in all different directions. St. Thomas Aquinas went so far as to suggest that envy, not pride, is the principal sin because it was envy that led Lucifer to aspire to receive the glory that was due only to God. There's a lot of envy in this book. There is uh, envy in literature. See it once you start to look for it. Cinderella... Uh, was envied by her stepsisters for her beauty and for her inner peace. Uh, we see envy um, playing out in other directions, in history. Uh, Salieri was envious of Mozart's talent. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm forced to confess that this week as I was working on a sermon, this sermon on envy, I found myself envious uh, of another pastor I read, there's a blog I read, and it, there was a report on the amount of time pastors spend working on their sermons. And it was 10 very prominent pastors in the amount of time, and it ranged from one hour to 32 hours a week. I'm probably 15 to 20. But I'm looking at this guy who spends an hour. He, he pastors a church of 15,000. His sermons are unbelievable. I listen to them frequently. And he works on these messages for one hour. So I'd get like three days if I, I could do that. And so I, I, I read more. And he says, yeah, I can just remember anything I've ever read. I can tell you what book it's in, what side of the page it's on. You know, I can just always remember all that stuff. <laughs> 
You know, I mean, in my good moments, I'm glad he's on our team. And in other moments, I, you know, I want to push him in front of a bus. It's like that, that's not fair. And so I feel envy. Uh, chances are I could, uh, chances are you feel envy as well. I could go on. I don't have to. We are all familiar with this ugly, joyless vice. This is the worst. If you are choosing from among the seven, uh, you do not want to choose envy. Uh, the other sins, for the most part, um, you know, pride, lust, greed, anger, uh, uh, gluttony, sloth, they all have upsides to them, right? And even pride, which is uh, the other one that we would say is bad through and through. Most of the sins are a corruption of something good. But even pride, which we would say is born bad, pride makes you feel good. I mean, you feel better than everybody else. Envy, you just feel small. It's a, it's a, it's a very small, ugly, joyless sin. And we don't want anything to do with it, but it's everywhere. And in fact, um, one of the psalmists, we think this is probably David in Psalm 73, not only confesses his envy, but he sort of gives voice to it. I'm reading now Psalm 73, beginning with verse 3. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Their pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know low limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I tried to keep my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Um, you might have felt that way. And so I am guessing I don't have to go to great lengths to describe the feelings of envy. But let's be certain we have a very clear definition of this term. Envy is, um, is wanting what somebody else has. Not, I also want what you have. Like, I want a car like yours. That's, uh, that may be greed, but that would not be envy. For starters, envy is, is usually less about material possessions than it is about other things. Uh, attributes, uh, opportunities, a life, right? You could envy someone's entire life. And secondly, envy is, is very interested in winning and having somebody else lose. Envy is, I want what you have, and I'm not going to be happy until I have it and you don't, right? I want your job. I want your boyfriend. I want your position on the football team. I want what you have, and, and I'm not going to, to rest until I have it and you're in my position. <clears throat> Thomas Aquinas uh, said that envy is sorrow for others' good. Dante described envy 
as a desire to deprive other men of theirs. And in his divine comedy, he said that those who are in hell suffering because of envy have to have their eyes sewn shut so that they do not look around and take joy at the suffering of others. Envy is the opposite of kindness. Envy is what is being spoken against in the Tenth Commandment, the one about coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is a, uh, as I said, this is an ugly, joyless uh, an ugly, joyless vice. And in order to understand how to move away from it, uh, we have to understand a few things about it. So, so let me get a running start here by making uh, three observations uh, that lead us to an understanding of envy. The first one is, we are dependent beings. We are creatures who were made in the image of God, but who are not God. We have needs. We need air and water and food. We need clothing and warmth and love. We need, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, That's how God created us. And so we have desires for the things that we need. That's fine, except we are broken, sinful, bent, crooked, fallen, depraved, any one of those terms. And consequently, our desires are frequently disordered. They're not what they could be or should be. For starters, we don't simply want what we need. We want what we want. And we want more than we need. And uh, we don't just want our daily bread as we're taught to pray, right? We want uh, enough money in the bank to know that we can buy bread next week and next year and for the next 30 years. And we don't just want bread, we want steak and ice cream and we want to be able to eat it all without gaining weight. And we don't just want a, a car for transportation, we want a car that makes a statement about us that we like, right? We have lots and lots of wants and, and these wants Um, are often disordered. And, tragically, they they set us up for a contentment problem. And the contentment problem grows out of the fact that we want things that are not ultimately going to be able to fulfill us. We we want things that we need, and that's good. We want food, and God created us to need food, and that's good. But, but we want a contentment out of things that things and positions can never give us. Because we were made for more than that. Right? We, we were made to only ever ultimately find our satisfaction in something that is bigger and grander and more awesome and holy and powerful and wonderful than the things around us. And when we look for meaning and when we look for contentment, when we look for too much out of things, those things end up betraying us. Gluttony, 
which we'll look at in a few weeks. Gluttony is a sin that, that tries to find more meaning out of food than food can deliver. When you're physically hungry, food is the right solution. When you're spiritually hungry, food is not the right answer. And food can't deliver that meaning. And so we find ourselves with a contentment problem. We want what we don't need. We want more of what we need than we need. We want other people's stuff. Our our desires are not inherently wrong, but many of them are disordered. And disordered desires makes us miserable. And part of what we have to understand is that we are never going to solve the envy problem by wanting what we envy. More of whatever it is that we think is going to make us happy is not going to deliver. It's a little bit like being thirsty and drinking salt water. It, It takes you in the wrong direction. What we were made for and what ultimately provides a sense of peace is a relationship with God. And absent that, we just can't get uh, to where we want to be. Now, in light of this, uh, let, me, let me back up and say that there's a whole different way that we could come at this. Um, so let me back up. I, I, I've made the point that um, uh, I started by suggesting that we are uh, dependent beings. We, we were created and that uh, we have a contentment issue because some of our desires are disordered. I want to make four different points coming at the whole problem of envy from a different vantage point. Number one, we need to understand that God is God and we are not. And his plans trump ours. And this is a really big point. And it's a point that is so significant that I would describe it almost like a second conversion and tragically would say that it is a second conversion that many people don't get to. God is God and we are not. His plans trump ours. When we come to faith initially, it's almost always from a position not simply of need but of selfish desire. I need to be forgiven. I want eternal life. I want heaven. Nothing wrong with any of that, right? And it motivates us. But coming right alongside of that, as as we begin to follow Christ, as we begin to see changes take place in our life, there's often an attitude that creeps in that says, now that I'm going to church, now that I'm in a small group, now that I'm volunteering at, at, uh, at Forrestal, now that I'm working with pads, now that I'm, I'm not swearing a blue streak every other day, now that I'm doing these things, I sort of should get some preferential treatment from God, right? I, God, is, God sort of is going gonna, is gonna to make my life easier. God is going to give me some of the things that I'm I'm after. He's going to baptize my dreams, and, and these things are going to come, come true. I get good parking now because I'm a good person, and, and these things ought to work out for me. And, and it's, it's 
close in one sense to the truth because to the extent that we seek God and live rightly, there are things that work out better frequently. But the idea that God is going to baptize our plans fundamentally misses out on the point that God is God and we're not. And, and he's not honor-bound to baptize our plans. What really happens is our heart begins to change and we actually end up wanting different kinds of things. So put this on hold for a second. I'm going to come back to it, but I need to introduce another idea. So God is God and we're not. The second big idea is that comparison is almost always a bad idea. Okay? Comparisons that we make are almost always uh, a bad idea. We end up envious when we're looking around rather than looking up. And, and there's so many things about comparison that don't work. I want to show you a brief video, 60 seconds of a TED video uh, that was done around this guy, Franz DeWall, who's a researcher on morality in animals. And in this uh, clip, there are uh, two capuchin monkeys. They're in cages right next to each other. And they have been trained that if they give a rock, uh, if they hand a rock back to the researcher, they get a slice of cucumber. And this is a good deal for them, and they're willing to do this pretty much all day long. Until a second monkey is not given a cucumber, second monkey is given a grape. And then we have problems. Let's watch this. Grape, and you will see what happens. So she gives a rock to us, that's the task. And we give her a piece of cucumber, and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us. And that's what she does. And she gets a grape. And she eats it. The other one sees that. She gives a rock to us now. Gets again cucumber. <laughs> she tests the rock now against the wall. She needs to give it to us. And she gets cucumber again. <laughs> so here's the deal. The comparison that, that that first capuchin monkey is doing to his his or her uh, friend in the next cage, is actually a relatively good comparison. Most of the comparisons that we make are not. Most of the comparison that we make are, are from a distance. And we end up frequently envying people that we have really no idea everything that's going on in their life. Additionally, the comparison that we do is very selective. We can feel good or bad about ourselves based on the, the, the way we decide to compare. You want to feel bad, you can compare your net worth to Bill Gates. You can compare your appearance to, to Kate Upton or Brad Pitt. You can compare your compassion to Mother Teresa. You can compare your wit to Jimmy Fallon. You can, you can find ways to, to feel poor, poorly about yourself. Or you can say, I'm going to compare uh, my appearance to Bill Gates. Or I'm going to compare my... Uh, my, my IQ to some ditzy starlet, right? So you can feel good or bad 
based on how you are choosing to make the comparison. And then even if we move past that and we are comparing ourselves to someone whose lives we actually know quite a bit about, odds are very high we are simply comparing to someone around us. And if you live uh, in the United States, you live in a home in the United States, you are already in the top 2% of the world's wealth. And so that is a very skewed comparison that's being given. The Bible never suggests that we compare ourselves to other people. It says if you're going to compare, compare yourself to, to Jesus or compare yourself against the standards of the law. Compare yourself to the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's how comparisons are supposed to be done. But we make comparisons all the time, and we just need to realize how, how dangerous that is. Additionally, <clears throat> we need to realize that God is God, and we're not. And it is his prerogative to create a world in which there are differences, and there will be people who are Richer, taller, faster, quicker, prettier, funnier, happier, whatever, than you are, than I am. And that's actually okay. That's God's option. He doesn't owe us anything. And our requirement, what, uh, the expectation given to us, is not to look around and to find somebody else that we think has a better deal and to envy them. What is asked of us, what is expected of us, is that we will be faithful stewards with the opportunities and gifts and resources that he has given to us. That's a very different approach. The idea, this is a hard truth, and some people do not like it, but the idea that God is God and it is his prerogative to create a world in which not everybody is the same, is, is an important point. Paul develops this in Romans chapter 9. In verse 20, he says, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of, lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes, and some for common use. God is God. We are not. You may think that things should be different than they are. Let me suggest that um, those to whom much has been given, much is expected. There is a sense of justice that will play out. Uh, Those that are given less, less is expected. And, and so God actually has this worked out in a way that's fair. Uh, in, so we, we actually don't need to worry about this. If, if you want to worry about something, I would suggest that almost all of us should be worried that we are among those who have been given a lot. Right? I, I, I was born somewhere between second and third base. The fact that I stand on third base doesn't mean that I hit a triple. It means I was given a really big lead. Anglo males with a lot of education who grow up in intact, loving families 
who, who are given every opportunity, right, uh, are, are among those who should say, wow, um, am I being a, a faithful steward with all that's been given to me? I, I sort of shifted. I, I hate envy. I really, it is, to me, the, the, the worst feeling. When I, when I want to be somebody else, when I'm jealous of somebody else's life, that is just so shallow and small. I don't struggle with envy that much uh, anymore. I, it really is the flip side of the equation for me now, looking around and saying, okay, I have been given so much. Am I being a faithful steward with what I have been given? God is God. Uh, we are not. Comparison is almost always a bad idea. Number three, our desires are both skewed and preyed upon. I've already mentioned this idea that our desires are skewed. We're broken. We're bent. And so we want what we don't need. We want, uh, we want things just because other people have them. It's worth noting, additionally, that our desires today are preyed upon. We live um, in a unique moment. We live in envy central, right? I mean, there, we, we are exposed to more advertisements in a week than people 150 years ago got in a lifetime. Smart people wake up every day bound and determined to shape our behavior, to buy a certain product or do a certain thing, and to create in us uh, a discontent until we have something that very likely six months ago we didn't know, even know existed. I mean, it can't be a desperate need. We don't even know what it's for until somebody explains it to us. And so we live in envy central. We just have to recognize that, that this whole discontent is being developed in us. And then uh, finally, again, we need to understand that contentment is a heart issue. Um, there is a baseline that we need. Food and water and shelter, right? And, and in this and in this world today where we're living, education and transportation, there are some basics. There is a baseline where we truly have needs. And if you drop below that baseline, it's a crisis. But most of us uh, are a long way from the baseline. And what we need to understand is that we are going to find contentment in ways very counterintuitive to the culture in which we find ourselves. Right. Contentment is never going to come because we have the stuff that we think is going to make us happy. That's just not who you are. You were made for something much bigger and grander and more precious and holy and wonderful than that. And so it's about our heart. It's not about our stuff. Years ago, I've, I've shared this story before, but it, it has stayed with me years ago when we were... Uh, newlyweds and didn't have much of anything, um, working in college ministry, and, and, and Sherry was volunteering uh, at a women's shelter, and she came back and said, there's a wonderful, delightful older woman who, um, who is always cold, and she says, I'd like to give her our uh, space heater. 
Now, I, I sort of um, spent a lot of time in front of our space heater, especially every morning, uh, bowing down, praying in front of our space heater, trying uh, you know, to get it to warm me up. So I was initially not very excited about giving away our space heater. But, you know, uh, you do these things, right? It's clearly the right thing to do. And so eventually I said, okay, fine, you know, you can, you can give away our space heater. And so she goes in that night, and, and when she comes back, uh, or t- you know, so did the lady like the space heater, and she says she loved it. She was so thankful. She talked about how great it was going to be, as she couldn't, she was looking forward to it. And she said, and then within 10 minutes, she gave it to somebody else. And she says, which really was sort of, oh, well, I, didn't, I didn't give it to you to give away. And she goes, and then I realized how happy she was that she had been able to do this, right, for somebody else, that she was very joyful that she had been able to do this, right? Contentment comes down that path, not by having the space heater, right? I mean, we have to understand that contentment and, and overcoming envy is about our heart. It's not about our stuff. So... What do we do? How do, you, uh, how do you, how do I overcome the envy that just sort of lives in our heart? Well, you know, there's a few things that I will recommend. Uh, make a list of all the blessings that you have. Right? Envy is supposedly your ability to make a list of all the blessings other people have. Use that ability to make a list of all the blessings that you have. Secondly, um, give something away. Right? Go with less. Give simplicity a chance. Uh, slay the green-eyed monster of envy by adopting more of a less is more mindset than, than buying into the more is more approach. And fourth, or third, pray for um, the flourishing of the people you envy. The the people that you want to take it from, (laughs) pray that they do well, right? Go right. Pray that they would know God's favor. Pray that their life would work, and and pray that God would give you the ability to find true joy in their prospering, not being small. And then finally, and with that, we come to this table. Um, We look to God. Going back to Psalm 73, the Psalm of David, where he says, uh, it was all in vain that I tried to live the right life. It was all in vain, right? I I envied all these other people because their life worked. Why was I doing this? Surely it was in vain that I was trying to be a good guy. At the end of that Psalm, he says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me. See, he's pivoted. I was senseless and ignorant of of being before you. Now I'm tuning in again. I was always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's remind ourselves of all that God has done for us and what ultimately matters, 
as we come uh, again to this table to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as those who are going to help distribute the communion elements come forward, let me remind you, um, as we state every time, that uh, this is an open communion table. Anyone, regardless of their membership at this particular uh, church, Christ Church, uh, this congregation, anyone for whom Christ is their Lord and Savior is invited to participate with us. And I'm going to pray for us, and we will um, then distribute the elements. Please use those moments. Uh, Hold on to the bread and cup, and I will come back, and we will partake together. Let me pray for us. Father, we are um, small and broken, and we often want uh, what we don't need, and we look past what you have given us, and we look past who you are, and we look for contentment in in places where we're never going to find it. We confess that as sin, as we ask for uh, you to meet with us as we come to this table. Thank you so much for the gift of your Son, your Son, our Savior and Lord. Thank you so much uh, that in his completed work we can be redeemed and restored and forgiven and given eternal life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us. Prepare our hearts now as we come to this table. In Christ's name.